Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, we talk to Christina Bicheri, who is the S.J. Patterson Harvey Professor of Social Thought and Comparative Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Christina works at the intersection of philosophy, game theory, and psychology. And in this interview, we talk to her mostly about her 2006 book, The Grammar of Society, and work she has done on the topic of social norms since. We begin the interview by talking about what exactly we mean by social norms and how they are different from similar concepts like conventions and altruism. We then move on to questions of how social norms evolve and why they persist, especially in situations where they are harmful. This includes so-called script activation in the brain and how people can form entrenched bad empirical expectations of others around them. And then lastly, we talk about real-world policy applications of social norms, including recent lessons from COVID to climate change to improving high-level decision-making. Personally, I found the topic of social norms pops up a surprising amount in conversations, whether it be ensuring good community norms persist or trying to reach a tipping point for social change. But I often find it is really hard to get a grip on what dynamics are actually at work here and how they play out in the real world. So I found Christina's work really useful in giving a formal framework to many of these fuzzy concepts, and I hope you will do too. So without further ado, here's the episode. One important thing, uh, you know that there is uh, all uh, this work on so-called norm-nudging, okay? And norm-nudging means uh, that basically you give uh, information about either what other people do or what other people approve or disapprove of, okay, in order to change behavior. And the big problem is that uh, it is not very satisfactory, um, analytically speaking, because it's like a black box <laughs> and there is an input, which is information, a message, etc., and the output is uh, behavior. And sometimes uh, we get the behavior we want, sometimes we don't, sometimes we get it, but it doesn't last, and so on and so forth. And so it's very, very important to be able to open the black box. And so one of the, the kind of research I'm doing now, not the only one, but is an important one, is try to understand, for example, what sort of inferences people make when you give them an empirical versus a more normative message, and if it is positive versus negative. And uh, I'm doing an experiment on that, and there are big asymmetries between the empirical and the normative, and also the positive and the negative. And so we have to take into account all that. And of course, there are also some outliers, and we try to understand why there are outliers. What does it mean? Fantastic. That, that sounds really interesting. And hopefully um, we'll, we'll get to this uh, again at the end of our, our conversation around, as you said, norm nudging and presumably using norms for, for social policy and, and, and kind of like shaping things uh, to, to do good. But maybe kind of taking a step back uh, for now and just asking a very basic question, which is when you're talking about norms, like what exactly is it that we are talking about? And uh, in your book, uh, The Grammar of Society, you spend a lot of time kind of discussing what exactly it is, what, that, uh, what we mean by a norm. So yeah, why don't we start off there? Yeah, it's a, a crucial question. It looks like a, a simple, easy question because a lot of people, for example, in social psychology, when they talk about norm, they talk of, uh, of uh, customary behavior, okay, a common behavior, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, it is a two-course, okay, a definition and not very usable <laughs> when you want to apply or 
uh, to behavior, change behavior, etc. So to me, a norm is uh, a social norm because there are different types of norm. A social norm, which is the most important, is a rule of behavior. Okay, it can be prescriptive or proscriptive. That is a rule of behavior, typically informal because the formal ones are legal rules. Okay, an informal rule of behavior, such that uh, that is supported, let's say, by uh, different type of social expectations. For example, what what do I mean? Empirical and normative. You know, we uh, expect. Uh, people in our reference network, because not all over the world, but we have a reference network, okay, the people that we care about when we have to make a certain decision, to follow it. So the empirical is, uh, you know, we know or we expect or we are told, etc. Or you, we have observed, we know because we have observed, <coughs> that people in our reference network follow this uh, informal rules. And then there is another component, which is uh, only typical of social norms versus descriptive norms, the normative one. Okay. Why we need a normative component with social norms and not with other types of norms? Because social norms uh, exist uh, typically in environment in which there is a conflict between uh, my welfare and other people's welfare. Okay, uh, these are the typical social dilemma, tragedy of the common situations. Okay, where social norms are typically born. You know, the typical you find them in this type of situation. Uh, what does it mean? These are situations where my action can create negative external effects for other people. So I have to curb, <laughs> in some sense, <laughs> my desires, <laughs> you know, and do something uh, uh, more altruistic. Well, social norms need this normative element, not just a descriptive, the empirical, but also the normative element that tells us, hey, look, you know, most people in your reference network, you know, approve of that or would disapprove of you if you don't do that. And uh, is that little push that uh, is important, uh, again, in all these situations where you have a tendency, you may have a tendency, you know, to be selfish. Sounds to me like one component of a social norm is an empirical expectation. So for instance, if I'm interested in whether or not I should, you know, clear up litter that I see on the street, um, one kind of expectation I'll have is that, in fact, other people will do that. But you're saying that another important component is that I have an expectation that people approve of cleaning up litter and disapprove of not doing that. And these are different different things. Exactly. And uh, you need them. When I talk of social norm, I, I talk of this uh, combination of expectations. But of course, uh, think, uh, think what thing. You may have all these expectations, and uh, behave selfishly anyway. <laughs> you may not care. And so the third important component of social norm is what I call a conditional preference. You prefer to behave in the appropriate way to follow the norm exactly because uh, you have those specific expectations. So your preference is conditional on having this expectation. Because if it were unconditional, it could be moral behavior, for example. You know, I may say, well, whatever other people do, whatever they think is right or wrong, 
you know, I think is right to behave in this way. And uh, this is uh, it's very important. I, usually, I, I am teaching these days exactly <laughs> what I'm talking to you about. And I have this big rectangle. And uh, on the left, uh, there is descriptive and injunctive, which is what social psychologists talk about. Uh, Cialdini keeps talking descriptive norm, you know, what people commonly do. Injunctive, what is right to do. The problem is, uh, uh, and then I look vertically and I separate and say, wait a moment, you know, injunctive can be a moral rule and, you know, a moral rule is not grounded on any expectation. I don't care, <laughs> you know. I don't hurt innocent people. Whatever other people do, I don't give them. Okay, and uh, and so saying that a social norm like dividing the cake fairly versus a moral norm like not hurting innocent people are both go under the big hat of injunctive norm is wrong. Why is wrong? Because when you do applied work and you want to understand change behavior, and you want to understand what motivates that behavior, okay, it becomes crucial to know, is it a moral rule? Are they following it because it's a moral rule, a religious rule, whatever, or they follow it because of social norm? In the second case, it's much easier to change. I see. So it's a norm if my beliefs that people in fact do this thing and that people approve of doing this thing are what get me to do it or what makes the difference between me doing it and not. Yeah, well, correct. <laughs> right. Because I might also just think that like littering or like having sex before marriage or something is just morally required. And in that case, it's not those beliefs that get me to do it. Exactly. And to tell you the truth, for some people, it may be just morally required. You know, some people may be completely insensitive to expectation, et cetera, what other people are doing or not. You know, there are always, uh, uh, you know, in a normal, I think there is a normal distribution of types in the population. Most types, most of us are conditional types, okay? We care uh, what other people do, what they think, et cetera, but there are people who do not. These are the little tales, the angels and the devils, <laughs> they exist. They exist, but they are really a minority. Yeah. So maybe to like um, highlight something I think you mentioned in the book, which is that if we just look at like behavior and stuff, right, it can presumably be difficult to, to differentiate between, I guess, descriptive norm and social norms. So one thing you, you point out is like, okay, let's say, imagine I'm like an alien and I'm just like visiting uh, like Earth and suddenly I see that when it's winter, people start wearing like really big coats and everybody seems to be doing that. Like a naive interpretation might just be, okay, there is a norm amongst humans to be wearing coats in winter. But I guess what you're pointing out here is um, people were wearing coats just for their own selfish behavior and it's not affecting anybody else. So just the fact that like everybody seems to be doing something is not enough for it to be a norm. It has to be conditional that people are wearing coats because they expect that other people want them to be wearing a coat and that that is like the normative, the right thing to be doing. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, with fashion, there may be a difference because with fashion, there are expectations involved, uh, and that's what I call a descriptive norm. Okay, descriptive norm is different from a social norm because it's much weaker. Uh, 
and uh, you know is all based on empirical expectation so wearing a coat in winter is a custom you know we all do that because we have the same needs we want to keep uh, warm <laughs> and uh, and the means are very restricted basically <laughs> okay but it's interesting uh, what you mentioned you know even a custom uh, you know may shift into a descriptive norm because of fashion Okay, this is fashionable, especially younger people, you know, to wear a certain type of coat. Well, that's become a descriptive norm. Expectations do matter in that case. Okay. Right, right, right. I have one very quick question on definitions. Is there a difference between a social norm and a convention? Yes, a big difference. Huge. <laughs> convention is a descriptive norm. Okay. What is a descriptive norm in, in a nutshell? Okay. Uh, is uh, a pattern of behavior, okay, uh, that is uh, common to a certain uh, population or subset of a population such that people follow it because they have certain shared expectations, okay? Now, we can have descriptive norm, very simple, like fashion effects, where the expectation is unidirectional. I want to dress like you, okay? And uh, you don't care dressing like me, but I want to dress like you. So imitation is typical, uh, underlying certain descriptive norm. In the case of convention, it's multidirectional because uh, I want uh, um, to behave, let's say, like you do, but you want to behave as I do. So, for example, in driving traffic, Okay, uh, there is a descriptive norm because, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I go to drive to the right uh, because I expect you to drive on your right coming across me. You don't want to cause an accident, etc., etc. So there are mutual expectations, okay? And uh, when they are sort of crystallized in a very common, continuous behavior, you have a convention, I see, I see. Yeah, so just to make sure that I'm understanding this right, in this kind of like example of um, everybody wants to be driving on the, the same side of the road, um, this is just like everybody wants to be imitating each other. Whereas what we talked about before, what like makes social norms kind of interesting or or kind of unique is that it goes against, you know, what might be like a simplistic interpretation of, of narrow self-interest. But in the case of like roads and stuff, it's like nobody has a self-interest of like what side of the road to, to be driving on or like, um, you know, what type of like outfits to wear. We just care about being the same as like everybody else. So there's not really like a self-interest thing. More than imitation, you have an interest to be safe. You have an interest to not to cause an accident and not to be dead in an accident. So it is perfectly rational for you to coordinate with other people. You know, I will do as other people do. I know that I have to drive on the right side of the road and I expect everybody to do. So, and they expect me to do. Because if we didn't have this almost automatic mutual expectation, it would be a disaster. You would be paralyzed. I wouldn't know what to do. Okay. So a convention, if you will, coordinates behavior. Okay, linguistic convention, same story, they coordinate behavior. Okay, I expect you to talk in a particular way and vice versa, and our behavior is perfectly coordinated, it's perfectly rational to follow a convention. 
totally rational. Following the social norm, we need a little push. <laughs> That's why the normative expectation play a role. I see. So one question is, how in general do people form empirical expectations about the kinds of things other people will be doing, especially when I take it some social norms are kind of about what people do in their private lives, right? You might have norms around premarital sex or something where most often you're not, you're not going to be directly observing that kind of thing. So what's going on when I form these expectations? Well, there are many ways to form expectation, obviously. The simplest is observation, okay? You observe certain um, regularities in behavior, you form expectation. And we are beings uh, that are extremely capable of forming expectation is part of being, of being human. We do that all the time, okay? And we try to find patterns, regularities around us. And uh, so you form expectation as soon as you see, you perceive there is some regularity, you know, in the, in the pattern of behavior around you. Uh, what if the behavior is non-observable? Okay. And typically, though, uh, certain consequences may be observable. Okay. So if there is a community that, uh, uh, you know, prohibit, let's say, premarital sex, well, you don't see if people have it or not, but you see that there are basically no pregnancies. <laughs> and then, of course, you infer that, uh, oh, okay, uh, this is the behavior that they follow. Okay. So it's very important for many behaviors uh, that are unobservable. We are told, uh, we are made to believe that, uh, um, you know, there are no consequences because uh, they observe the behavior, uh, the behavior prescribe or prescribe something and they do it. And therefore we don't see the opposite. Okay. But uh, yeah, this is, it's always, if you will, uh, it's never precise. Okay. It's never precise, but you tend to infer very easily. Also children do that constantly. You know, children infer rules from, uh, you know, behavior which really is not a social norm. This is studied in children. You know, children have this capability uh, of inferring constantly rules, uh, even if indeed uh, there is no specific rule. But this means we have this capability, we have evolved it, uh, which is important to survive uh, in a social world, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So one really interesting thing that that stood out from your book was you made this point that you know we're forming empirical uh, empirical expectations all all this time, um, but humans are actually also really bad uh, like judging like other people and that this can lead to like some interesting behavior. So in particular, the thing you pulled out is that um, we expect others to act much more selfishly than we expect uh, ourselves to do, um, or in fact, like like they actually do themselves. And this leads to this like interesting phenomenon called uh, pluralistic ignorance. Can you maybe take some time? I'm like laying this out and, and why exactly this matters for, for social norms. Yeah. Uh, so basically what happens is the following. I'll give you an example. Easy. You are a student in a classroom and the lecture is really hard. And you look around and nobody raised their hand to ask a question. <laughs> okay. Um, and so you feel sort of embarrassed, you know, doing it yourself and your, your typical interpretation is, well, 
I'm really the only one who did not understand. Uh, the other students are much better than me. They understand. I don't want to humiliate myself, <laughs> raising my hand and asking this obviously stupid question, <laughs> and so on and so forth. You know, and uh, clearly this is a case. Uh, this is a typical case that uh, you know I give my students. A case where there is, first of all, no transparent communication. Okay, we don't talk to each other and say, "Hey, you know," but that was really difficult. Uh, do you understand? No, I don't understand. Why not? Etc. We don't talk so much about that. So there is uh, no uh, preliminary transparent communication. And uh, in that situation, uh, you typically, this is another psychological tendency, uh, you typically uh, impute the behavior of, of other people, uh, not to the same motives that you have, Okay, but you think, okay, they behave like that. Why? Because uh, in their case, you know, they know. Or because they prefer to behave like that. Because they have no need to ask a question. Okay. So you tend to impute um, lots of things like preferences, uh, beliefs, etc., to other people that are different from yours. Okay, you feel you are an outlier and they are the normal people and the normal people know the answer and the normal people do not ask this question because it's a stupid question. Exactly. And uh, so there are lots of situations in which uh, basically uh, we practice pluralistic ignorance. The famous, famous example is the Princeton story where social psychologists were asked by the parents, you know, to what, what's happening. We need to curb um, underage drinking. There, there, there is a lot of drinking, etc. And uh, what shall we do? What shall we do? And uh, the, the, uh, the interesting uh, remedy was, okay, let's ask the students themselves. Let's do a survey and uh, how much they like to drink, etc., uh, etc. Et and the result of the survey was really interesting because the majority do not feel like drinking so much at, at evening in the bar, etc., etc. But in a sense, uh, they felt compelled because uh, they had the impression that everybody, you know, wants to drink. And I am the only one which is wishy-washy. I would prefer a Coke. So... Uh, you know, and uh, the idea is that when uh, this uh, uh, knowledge is made available, uh, then uh, students will drink less and so on and so forth. So pluralistic ignorance uh, will be defeated. So just honing in on, I guess, like why this behavior seems, you know, ignorant or, or kind of irrational. It's not that there's something like, if I'm understanding you right, it's not that there's something like inherently in the fact that I think I'm like an outlier or something. It's more that like, I know that the reason why I'm conforming to this behavior is because um, um, like I am being pushed by this normal, I'm being influenced by other people. However, when I'm thinking like, why are other people doing this? I'm not like able to like kind of connect the dots that they might be doing this for the exact same reasons as me. Yes, uh, yes. Um, there are a, a lot of psychological studies about this asymmetry in attribution we generally, uh, you know, very often, uh, especially in a bad situation, this is a little beyond pluralistic ignorance, I tend uh, to attribute my behavior to the situation. 
the situation was such that I had to behave like that. Uh, but the same behavior, um, you know, when it is uh, uh, the behavior of somebody else is justified with, they prefer to behave like that. It's a choice. So for me, it's not a choice. For them, it's a choice. And this asymmetry in attribution is also what happens with pluralistic ignorance and with lots of other areas of life, I must say. And then just to draw out what you said um, a little while ago, presumably pluralistic ignorance is often bad insofar as it does harm, right? Um, sometimes on a larger scale, example of expectations around um, alcohol consumption, it's a good example. But it sounds like the intervention to kind of break that that bubble or that spell of pluralistic ignorance is to make it common knowledge, right? And so one way of doing this is to is to hand out a sur- an anonymized survey and then report the results back to the same the same people. Uh, yes, um, the the important thing uh, that um, people tend not to realize when we talk we talk about you know solution in this case uh, you know a typical solution would be let's make the statistics known you know let's make it known what people the majority of people feel about that or think about that etc. It's very important that the source of information is credible. You have to remember that because very often when we get some information, we think, okay, well, what is uh, advantageous to them uh, if I change behavior, <laughs> you know? And uh, it's very, very important. Um, I've been discussing with my student uh, very recently exactly this point. I say it's not just a question of sending the right information because you're sending truthful information, but they have to believe it that is truthful and uh, that you don't have a secondary, uh, you know, interest. This is very important. Yeah. If I got a letter from my my college or something saying, oh, it turns out drinking less is trendy now or something, that might be factually true, but I'm not going to believe it because they have their own reason for saying that. They have an agenda. Exactly. And uh, this is what happens a lot uh, in uh, the developing world when uh, we do campaigns uh, against uh, like child marriage or female genital cutting, et cetera, et cetera. And they are typically governmental campaigns. And uh, also, very typically, uh, people may start thinking, why do they, you know, do they want to change, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, what they think is they don't think in terms of norm or custom, etc. Is our practices we have done for centuries, etc. Why are you coming and telling me to stop now? What's their interest? Okay, and so people have to be really, really, um, they, they have to believe that uh, there is uh, no secondary agenda behind that to trust. And typically it's much better if the message comes from somebody in their environment and not somebody outside their environment. You know, that's one of the reasons why so many informational campaigns, you know, against HIV, against a lot of, you know, behavior that could be damaging or are effectively damaging, have failed exactly because uh, they were not trusted at all and also because information alone doesn't go a long way at all. I see. I guess the the kind of good news on the flip side is that if you are able to uh, provide this credible information, then it's possible to kind of puncture that that bubble, right? 
And then once you are able to do that, it spreads very quickly and you get this kind of cascade where views flip um, all of a sudden. So maybe, for instance, attitudes to, to gay marriage in the US and the UK are a good example. Is a, is a great uh, a great example, and uh, I was going to say my next thing, which is uh, you know what is uh, what has been the most successful information, and uh, how was it uh, uh, diffused? Well, uh, soap operas, soap opera, soap operas, and I always think this tolerance for gay behavior, gay couple that now can marry. Well, uh, soap operas had a huge impact because people saw that uh, the friend, the brother, um, was gay and uh, he is a completely normal person, even likable. Oh, my God, <laughs> etc. So uh, the, the presentation of uh, uh, this kind of person, this kind of behavior in a familiar, acceptable, normal way has done tons of goods, basically, more than informing uh, rights and this and that. You know, in America, there have been uh, a lot of soap operas uh, where gay characters um, were included in a very natural way. You know, they were gay, but they were normal. And so uh, I think, and they have to last quite a long time, and for people to get accustomed. is an interesting psychological reaction. It, it needs to be studied, is that people sort of identify with this character, okay? They think uh, they are almost family to them. And when people identify so much, etc., economists are studying this effect, uh, the enormous cultural and demographic effects. And, uh, of course, uh, um, it's not the information. Uh-uh. Uh, you don't inform about anything. You see the people living their lives normally. Yeah, I, I guess I maybe want to like delve a bit deeper in, into this question then here. So we, I guess, have on the one hand this this story about um, how these soap operas or how um, like uh, the, these portrayals in like mainstream media like help um, you know humanize um, these characters and show that they're like uh, much more well rounded and stuff. And then I'm guessing like especially based on our like kind of discussion before as well, like how much of this matters that these portrayals are like in the mainstream and that we know that like other people are like watching this thing as well and that it then becomes like common knowledge. Common knowledge, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then I guess uh, leads into like what we we're talking about before, where we're also thinking, well, what do other people think? Um, if something is like on TV, then do I have like more confidence in um, expressing uh, my views, saying that um, homosexual like relationships and stuff are, are all right uh, in my private life again? Yes, because uh, there is a sense that a lot of people are watching it, especially some very, very, um, you know, followed and liked program, etc. You know, people in the developing world is very interesting. Uh, is uh, well, it's not that different. Then I tell you, I give you an example. Uh, but in India, Africa, etc., uh, these uh, radio or later television soap operas were listened to by group of people, friends, listen and talk to each other about that. So that there is a, a sort of collective uh, discussion of these issues, which is crucial. And is crucial, uh, again, to common knowledge, because I know that you're watching it and we're commenting it. And so there is uh, these, uh, I would say, 
public knowledge that we are all following the same uh, you know, story and that we are talking about it, we are commenting it, etc., etc. So this is really very, very important, this social dimension. Now, uh, in America, is a little uh, bit uh, uh, different, but I know that people who were watching, uh, you know, very, very uh, uh, common scenes of opera, etc., were talking about that afterwards. So we're talking about what's going on, why they did this or why they did that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was even even in a very modern <laughs> country this sort of public discussion. Of uh, of what's going on uh, in right. this program, which, which then going back to the to the classroom example, right? Is then you know one of the issues there is that like students unable to communicate with each other, that they're maybe like not understanding the syllabus or so, and it's a lack of communication that that lets the norm persist. It's very different. It's very different. Pluralistic ignorance. Basically, there is a, a disconnect uh, between uh, people' personal beliefs and people normative expectation in some cases, or personal, uh, empirical, and, uh, you know, uh, collective, uh, what the collective does. And uh, this, uh, I must must add, um, allow the survival of very bad behaviors. This is very important because sometimes we think, how comes that there are very negative, inefficient, uh, or uh, really damaging norm surviving, well, they survive because of pluralistic ignorance, okay? Because uh, the environment is such that it doesn't allow, you know, transparent communication and uh, in particular people realizing what other people really do or, you know, really think about this behavior. And so the challenge is to figure out how to go from a place where everyone has some kind of private belief that doesn't line up with their behavior to a place where everyone knows that everyone else has that private belief and everyone knows that everyone knows that everyone else has that private belief and so on, right? But it's not easy. Um, but let's let's get um, let's get kind of technical again. I guess one question I, I was curious to ask is, um, so I understand that one way people try to explain why certain social norms exist in the first place is they'll say something like, well, there are lots of things like collective action problems in the world. And it would be good if um, the norms we actually see uh, existed because then they would solve some of these problems. And so there's this kind of post hoc explanation, right? Like um, they're kind of functionally useful. Um, Another word you might hear is that norms are kind of exogenous in this way. Um, And I understand that you've criticized that kind of way of explaining why norms exist. So what's what's the criticism? Well, it's a functionalist way, you know, it, it exists because it performs a certain function. It's like a post-hoc ergo propter-hoc <laughs> explanation. Uh, but if you think of the evolution of norms, which is a little bit uh, uh, different story, uh, and uh, you look at environment where certain norms have evolved, certain social norms again, uh, then you see that uh, these were all environments where uh, there were negative externalities produced. So the action of some people produced, uh, uh, you know, uh, negative effects on other people. You know, these are typical situations where you want to steer people to a better 
collective behavior, a better behavior for the community. Uh, why do you do that? Why, how do you do that? Not why. How do you do that? Well, there is introduction of some form of sanction, some form of punishment. Okay. So it's not true that social norm only survive because if you don't follow, you will be punished because very often they become internalized. You don't need any punishment. But certainly if you look at the evolution of norms, you know, at the beginning, certain, certain rules that, you know, we give us or that emerge quite spontaneously sometimes emerge in order to guarantee some form of social order, okay, even if it is a very small group, a very small community, and not the society at large, and uh, and they are often accompanied by some form of negative sanction if you don't, you know, uh, behave in an appropriate way. So the emergence of norm of social norms, not of convention or other things, because you don't need a negative sanction for a convention, <laughs> you know, is perfectly rational to follow it. Um, the, for a social norm, sometimes convention becomes social norms. Why? When uh, not following the convention creates a negative externality for everybody else, then it can become a social norm. But uh, again, this transition in evolution to social norm is very often accompanied by a form of punishment. That's really interesting. I would love to um, maybe like uh, throw some like uh, challenges here, uh, kind of your way, and, and hear your take on them. Um, one, you know, um, like thought I, I might have like when hearing this is that like sure, you know, norms might be um, like inefficient or uh, you know actually create like uh, losses and stuff to the groups. But then if we're thinking about norms in this like evolutionary capacity, why isn't it the case that just like the groups that adopt these bad norms end up getting outcompeted by groups that do not? So like even if we have you know a bad norm persists for a while, shouldn't this all be like self-limiting in a way? Or like what what would go against that that kind of like evolution? This can happen. This can happen. Um, you know, it, it can happen that a group uh, that has certain historically developed certain type of norms because they were really uh, constrained in their environment, you know, with an opening up of the environment in some sense, uh, you know, they start competing with other groups that have uh, better norms, better rules. Yes, this happens. Actually, uh, there is a, a very interesting uh, uh, economic history paper by Avner Greif uh, that studies two uh, communities of merchants, the Maghrebi and the Genoese. Okay? And uh, they were both flourishing in their times. But the interesting thing uh, is. Uh, of, of course, uh, in order to uh, practice commerce, you have to have trust, you know, you, you have to have, uh, you know, uh, certain, uh, uh, certain rules, if you will. And what it shows is that at a certain point, as uh, the, the economy evolved and you get in touch with other groups and the market become much larger, etc., the Genoese did much better. Okay, again... Because the rules, the norms were more apt. Okay, they were not designed <laughs> for the new markets, but they were apt, uh, you know, um, to respond in a better way to an expanded market versus the Maghrebi type of rules. It's very interesting. Again, uh, you know, we live uh, uh, in a 
changing world. And our world is particularly quickly changing. <laughs> you know, it's not that 300 years or 400 years ago. And so these uh, constant uh, change and getting in touch with different cultures, etc., has an effect, I think, important on the evolution of norms. And some norms that have stayed there forever may disappear relatively quickly. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I guess if the conditions uh, and such are right, then these bad norms or these inefficient norms can um, suddenly be outcompeted and displaced. Um, but another kind of, I guess, like um, functionist argument I've heard, in fact, um, by by Gillian Hadfield, who who came onto our podcast uh, a few episodes ago, was this idea that like seemingly silly rules can actually um, like play a useful role in like making us more aware of um, you know um, social like. Uh, sanctions and like make us like more um, aware of this. So I guess to maybe like um, simplify somewhat, but um, recap, um, the idea here is that like we have, you know, some seemingly not not harmful or like not inefficient per se norms, but um, just kind of silly ones around like, you know, how you, how you use your cutlery or should you wear a hat like this day or that day. And one of her arguments is that um, at least from some of the experiments she was conducting is... Uh, that it just makes us more aware that like social punishment exists or that we should be abiding by the group and such that then when it comes to like really important or like really good norms, we are already aware of like this is the place or we've already learned about them in, in this way. Um, yeah, and I was wondering if, if you have like a take on this, um, uh, either on, on, on the research or on the point. I'm not sure. Okay, uh, so in her case, for example, some uh, purely descriptive norm, let's say, okay, how to wear a hat uh, or, you know, something uh, which is completely descriptive, what I call descriptive norm. Uh, so it's only based on empirical expectation, nothing else, uh, and, you know, uh, imitation, you want to be like other people, whatever, uh, you know, has, uh, a, and they seem to be stupid. Well, they are not stupid because they make us aware that of more important, uh, of more important rule, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think uh, that, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, and I don't know if you can make a final important experiment to show this, uh, to, to support this hypothesis, because uh, you, you do lab experiments that are usually very limited. But one thing that, ca that I can say, looking at children, because uh, when we study children, it's amazing how children uh, are basically uh, rule machines. <laughs> that's, that's how they learn language. How do you think they learn language? Because they immediately, our brain is such that we detect patterns. We are made like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so following a rule is the easiest possible thing. And what you see in children up to, you know, uh, four or five years of age is that uh, for them, almost everything becomes a rule. Even stuff that is not a rule at all. But that's how the mind works. Okay? Everything you see that something is done uh, by your parents, by other kids, etc., and it's completely incidental, then kids make, you know, we are rule makers, basically. That's how our brain functions. So it's not that the simple rule, uh, the stupid rule, will lead us then to obey the stronger rule, etc. We are rule followers. 
end of story. There are some interesting uh, uh, experiment, recent experiment uh, by an economist. Uh, he is um, in uh, uh, Nottingham, um, Simon Gachter. And Simon has done this wonderful experiment in which basically, <laughs> you know, the rule is uh, meaningless. Okay, zero meaning. Uh, you know, you cannot think, oh my God, it's similar to something else. No, zero meaning. And if people disobey the rule, they get a prize. And uh, obeying the rule, meaning lose money. But uh, if they observe that other people are obeying these stupid rules, they will follow and lose the money. And so is a Great experiment because the rule is not just stupid or not, it's completely insignificant. It means nothing. Okay? But the interesting thing is if you observe other people doing this, even if you know you're going to lose money, they do it. A large majority, not everybody, but a large majority, which tells me we are born to be rule followers. Yeah, so so maybe to like hone in on this, so I should like maybe have, have added before that when um, Gillian Hadfield was like doing these like experiments and such, she actually wasn't doing them with, with either adults or children. She was doing them with these like um, AI systems that I guess like learn around their environments and such. And I think um, one way to maybe like summarize her, her research is that essentially the AI learns in these like much more frequent examples of like encountering like silly rules that if there's like some sort of like punishment, then it is generally good to follow rules or it's like generally good to follow other people like what they are doing um, because, you know, otherwise you might get like a little punishment. But it's just, I think, like maybe a lot about learning that rules and punishments and social sanctions and such exist, which means that you're then able to learn much quicker or adapt much quicker um, when new rules are introduced or when you like find out about new rules and such. And maybe that then links into this, this question here of when you're saying that we are born like being like rule makers and such of like how intrinsic is that or like how early on do we learn these things? Is it like, you know, before we're already born that we're born with this like rule following thing? I think it's intrinsic. Uh, we, we would never learn language otherwise. It would be impossible because we implicitly learn a lot of rules of uh, syntax and semantics. Uh, how, how do we learn them? Who knows, but we do. Ab absolutely. And uh, these studies uh, done uh, with children are incredibly interesting because exactly they show that uh, very small kids uh, tend to uh, make everything into a rule, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you know, it becomes a rule, even if it's not a rule. And so I don't think the story of punishment, etc., cetera, um, would help much because in the end, of course, in the evolution of the mind from a little child to an adult, you learn a lot of things and you learn that something are not are not really rules uh, and something uh, will get punished or not, etc., etc. But uh, if we didn't have this innate, I would say, capability of detecting patterns or of searching for patterns, the idea is you search for a pattern, okay, uh, it would be very, very hard to establish rules uh, that then people follow, etc., etc. One last question that I have on this kind of um, like bad norms kind of persisting uh, and such before we maybe move on is you had this like really amusing anecdote uh, in the book around like Turnbull's analysis of I think it was the the Eek, uh 
around like reciprocity and um, how everybody might realize that like rules are like or norms are really silly or inefficient and then go on to like adapt around that. But yeah, I was just wondering if you could maybe maybe explain that. That is a great example. And uh, I was totally fascinated by the book because the author, Turnbull, says, well, the ick really have no rules, uh, etc. And uh, reading these stories uh, uh, made me conclude the opposite, that uh, they have rules, but they are so wed to the rules, uh, they, they are so embedded in them that they try uh, as hell <laughs> to circumvent them. i give you an example. He sees these people repairing their roofs in the village at the wee hours of the night. <laughs> so he says, why do you do that? And they say, well, because if I do it during the day, everybody will come to me and say, let me help you. Let me help you. And uh, I don't want that. Why not? Because if they help me, I have them to help them. Okay, so there are very, very strong rules of reciprocity. And uh, they feel that in their condition, they cannot afford this uh, reciprocation. They, they live basically below subsistence in a, a, a terrible situation. And therefore, what made me think is, okay, they have very strong rules. What they try to do is uh, to not put themselves in a situation where they have to obey them. Another interesting story is he notices that hunters go far away to hunt. Far away. It's a lot of expenditure of time, energy, etc. Why so? Because nobody is watching them and nobody is seeing how much they caught. And so they can eat it without sharing. Why? Because if somebody of their tribes goes there, and seize it, they have to share. So what the Turnbull example told me is there are very strong norms and what people are trying to do is circumvent them. Okay, but interesting question, why they didn't change them? Okay, and probably because uh, they have been there forever you know, they, they, this uh, reciprocation, etc., in a small community helped them survive, basically. And, uh, you know, so they, they hadn't questioned them ever. They tried to circumvent them. Got it. So one question I was curious about is maybe there are some cases where there's kind of more than one norm which could tell me what to do in the decision I'm facing. And it's a bit like, you know, I'm picking from which script to follow. Um, I'm curious whether there are examples of that. And also just how big is that effect normally? Well, we are surrounded by norms. <laughs> and, uh, well, it depends. I think uh, without uh, really uh, being uh, very aware of that, but uh, we uh, tend to give priority to the situation we are in, okay? And therefore, uh, you know... Uh, to follow the rules uh, that are scripted, if you will, in that situation. I talk a lot about script and schema, et cetera, which is very important because, uh, um, you know, we, we, uh, we reason by analogy. When I am in a new situation, immediately, without sitting down and thinking for three hours, what, what immediately happens is I try 
to assess some similarity with some other situation I've been in. And that's what we do in experiments. And that's why we see so much difference in small society versus our society. Think of Heinrich type of experiments with the same game, etc. very different result. And so uh, back to your question, uh, depending on the situation, we have an enormous number of, uh, of rules. And depending on the situation, I really cut down because of the situation. These are the rules that are important in this situation. There may be conflict. There may be conflict of rules, but typically, um, uh, for example, I did a very interesting example with trust games. And uh, uh, in one game, uh, you know, the investor and uh, the trustee start with the same endowment, the same amount of money. And you see the result commonly, you know, the investor gives some money, and then the trustee has, uh, the money is multiplied and trustee has to reciprocate, okay? And this uh, consistently happens. There is lots of reciprocation and uh, the rule seems to be reciprocity. Now, slightly changes the situation where the investor starts with a higher en- uh, endowment than the trustee, okay? Double, actually. But then, uh, you know, he shares uh, the money is multiplied, etc. But uh, the problem is, uh, uh, at this point, if he shares, they are left with the same amount of money. Hmm. What happens? No reciprocity, equality. <laughs> so it's very interesting that uh, we have two rule pits against each other. One is reciprocity, the other is equality. And uh, they uh, tell you to do two very different things. And in that case, the trustee chooses equality. Why? Because it's more in their interest. So basically, when you see that there are several rules that may conflict with each other, I can predict that the subject will privilege the rule that gives them some advantage. But justified advantage. Mm -hmm. Remember that. I guess I mentioned like how often are those decisions between which kind of script to follow or which norm to go with, how often are they on such a kind of knife edge that you can make quite a big difference in what norms people follow by quite a small change, you know, the way you frame the um, experiment you're running or the way you kind of phrase certain things. Are there examples where even just changes in wording could could change the things people people do? Yes, uh, but uh, this is exactly, uh, you know, a confirmation of my hypothesis that uh, we constantly sure. use a script and schemata to interpret the situation. Think of those games uh, uh, where uh, the, uh, a friend of mine did that, uh, where she put a star <laughs> on, uh, you know, in ultimatum games. So when you make an offer, if it's accepted, fine. If it's rejected, you both get nothing. And uh, uh, she put a little star uh, either on, uh, you know, uh, proposer or responder, etc. And the fact of the little star, which is absolutely insignificant, imagine a little star, uh, made people feel more um, uh, basically uh, that they could ask more or they could keep more money. And uh, it's very interesting because... Uh, you know, nobody says anything. There was no previous uh, test that somebody did better than others, etc. Nothing. 
but it's very interesting. They immediately grasp of the little star symbol, the, the symbolic, I have something more than you, then I will give you less. Or, uh, you know, if I am a responder, I may ask for a, a pretend a little more. But the interesting thing is the first person who has to offer the money uh, offers significantly less. Uh, so, again, is uh, uh, very little changes lead us to interpret the situation in different ways and typically, you know, in a way that uh, makes us better off, I would say, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's, it's very human, it's very common. Well, one point that, that's maybe like worth flagging here as well is this like question of like how lab experiments relate to like situations in the real world, where I could imagine, for example, if I am like uh, a participant in one of these like automatum games kind of in a lab and stuff, there probably aren't that many um, signals or stimuli or such. That's such a small thing, like a golden star uh, or, on a piece of paper or something might be the only signal or the only cue um, for me to kind of like interpret like what norm might be applying or like what context I'm kind of making decisions in. Whereas if I might in get the same form with like a little star in real life, uh, real life is also like a much richer environment where, you know, I might know the other participant or um, I might just have like lots of other signals from like my environment and stuff kind of coming around as well. That this maybe is like one of these things as well there. It's careful to interpret results with, with real life. Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. This is all the work that Cialdini did uh, did on the focus theory of norms, uh, which I like a lot, because basically what he says is, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people have criticized uh, the use uh, of social norms. They say, well, they cannot predict anything, you know. You can't predict that because there is a social norm, people will follow it. And he said, well, not exactly. You have to focus people on the norm, exactly because there are so many exactly because uh, we live in a world of rules, etc., in order to follow a particular rule, people have to be focused. And uh, that's what I was trying to say when I say, well, it depends on the situation, because the situation itself very often will focus you on one rule versus another. And that's what Cialdini did uh, with the littering experiment. I know where, he, where you were interested in that, basically. And uh, the interesting thing is the following. So there is, they did the psychology experiment uh, in the lab, is a fake experiment. <laughs> then the real experiment happens in the garage where they find a flyer, okay, under the windshield. Uh, and uh, they have to decide what to do. And uh, if the garage is uh, uh, completely clean, okay, uh, there uh, a a very marginal number of people, uh, you know, very few people will trash. The interesting thing, if uh, the garage is clean, but there is only one piece of trash, this is Cialdini's idea, you will be focused by looking at the piece of trash on the cleanness of the garage. And indeed, you know, the percentage of people littering with one piece or zero piece is lower. Okay, the interesting thing is that there are threshold effects because already with two pieces of trash, it goes up, three pieces goes up, etc., etc. So basically, it looks as if we have thresholds, okay, and I believe we do, and depending on the number of infractions in this case, we will come to a completely different conclusion. And I think it was a great experiment 
And I think, again, answering your question, you have to be focused on ex- exactly because, as you say, there are many, many conflicting norms, many different rules, etc. You have to be focused. Kind of maybe zooming out a little bit, but uh, a point that I think is like maybe worth emphasizing is that I definitely read um, this take on on social norms and such as like really making a point that like our decisions or like where kind of our mind goes and such is like much more um, involuntary in some ways, right? Than like you normally hear in like maybe the economics or the like rational choice literature that rather than like going through all of the norms that apply and like which one might be the best fitting and which one gives me like the best benefit and going through all of these like costs and balances, a lot of what you're you're talking about seems to happen like much more automatically or through these kinds of like cognitive shortcuts. Um, yeah, do you want to elaborate on, on that point at all? Well, uh, we use heuristics all the time to make choices simply because uh, we don't have uh, the luxury of spending that much time, <laughs> you know, sitting down and thinking, etc., etc. Of course, certain, even in decisions where we should uh, pay more attention, like investing decision <laughs> or deciding how much money or if to put any money into a pension fund, you know, people make a lot of mistakes, okay? And uh, don't sit down and think or gather all the necessary information, etc. And uh, they seem to use uh, simple heuristics that sometimes are not that, uh, not that favorable to them. So this is, uh, this is uh, clearly, um, uh, clearly a problem. I think that we tend uh, to use uh, more uh, awareness and thinking uh, not always, but the kind of situation is a situation where we pay and we know we pay a heavy price for making a mistake. So there are situations that in a sense force us to think in a more comprehensive way, you know, not using a heuristic, but just sit down and think what they should do, etc., etc. Or when you're very sick and you have to decide should I have a surgery or not, uh, typically you would uh, you would spend more time uh, uh, thinking and being aware, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, most of our life, of course, uh, is not like that. It's not this momentous decision. It's very simple decision, and we use heuristics all the time. And so, following the social norm is something that we naturally do, basically, without much, you know, uh, prodding by somebody else. So it's. Uh, is uh, I in in my 2006 book uh, there is I think it was at the end of chapter of chapter one a section of awareness because people when people think of rationality they immediately think of awareness if you are rational you are aware not necessarily okay to make a rational choice. Uh, uh, doesn't mean that you have to be aware. You can reconstruct it as a rational choice exposed and say, yes, it was a rational choice. But does it mean that exactly you were aware and made all the calculation? No. So you can say that something is rational without having to ascribe awareness you know, to the subject. This is very important to understand, especially for people in sociology or whatnot that uh, don't seem to understand that saying that the choice is rational does not mean in the least that people were aware and made the calculation, etc. This is very important to realize. 
Yeah, I also want to like um, maybe return to this um, conversation we had around how people just really aren't sure like what norms might be applying to a situation. And, you know, either we, we kind of look at this like heuristically or we try and like actively collect information, right? Like about the environment or about like our other participants in order to find out um, which, which norm kind of applies. Here. And you gave this like really interesting uh, example in, I believe, the, the same book around um, communication and cooperation in, in kind of ultimatum games. Uh, can you maybe introduce that, that topic for us? Uh, well, uh, communication is crucial. Okay, because uh, think uh, you are in a typical uh, social dilemma game and there are lots of experiments have been done about, uh, you know, the effects of communication. And uh, the interesting thing is what sort of communication? Okay, um, because, uh, I mean, uh, is a, a very vast subject. I try to summarize by telling you if the communication is about uh, things uh, that are irrelevant to the game you are playing, uh, nothing happens in the sense that the result will be identical to results of game in which there is zero communication. If you allow the communication to be about the game and what to do in the game, then you have very interesting result because very often people, uh, you know, will discuss about uh, what's more convenient to do uh, for just all of them and they will be making promises. So communication often, when you allow them to talk about the game, leads to promising, to commitment, to saying, okay, um, you know, let's do this. Um, I promise I will do this, or I will do that, etc., etc. And it's very interesting that, especially with a smaller group, uh, people, especially face-to-face, people start trusting each other and uh, they fulfill their promises, they cooperate. There is an incredible amount of cooperation if you allow people to discuss about the game and what to do in the game. And they end up uh, understanding that it's much better to be cooperative and that uh, indeed, uh, you know, if uh, the other people, I promise, we will fulfill our promise. We have a lot of data about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to mention a very quick red herring, which is... Um, you mentioned that um, the fact that people make the rational decision does not imply that they are aware of why that's rational or what the rational decision was, ex ante. Um, maybe this is totally obvious, but I feel like I want to say the other direction works as well, right? So like the fact that you're fully aware of what the rational decision is certainly doesn't imply that you'll make it. Um, I can think of cases where I, I, I would you know, maybe have an idea of what the rational thing is, but would feel very strange about, about making it. And maybe um, uh, expectations and norms kind of explain, explain um, why that is. Uh, well, first of all, you have to clarify rational for you or rational right. for the Self-interestedly rational. Ah, okay. Um, if something, uh, well, again, is interesting. Uh, this case uh, of communication, uh, everybody knows uh, that, uh, okay, let's say we are four people and we discuss and we decide that it's better for the group, you know, to, uh, to put the money in, you know, to be cooperative. The this is very interesting. The fact that people communicate and say something is really binding. <laughs> it's amazingly binding. And I give you an interesting example. I've done uh, uh, during the summer for several years, 
some uh, training for UNICEF members, okay? And uh, on social norms, some uh, measurement, how to change things, etc. And one thing I did was making them play games in small groups. And one of the games was uh, uh, a social dilemma with communication. Okay? And uh, one group uh, didn't do well at all. Well, a group of four people didn't do well at all. And uh, uh, I say, uh, did you talk? Did you communicate? And there was this lady that said, no, I didn't say anything because I knew that if I said and promised, then I would have to do that. And I didn't do it on purpose. I mean, it was very interesting. She kept silent because she hoped that other people put the money in and she get a bigger price, basically. So people, um, in that case, she knew that if she talks, if she opens her mouth, if she says, I will do, she will do that. So this is an interesting thing. And, uh, you know, there is a, a conflict, clearly, what is rational for her, what's, what's better for the group. But it's very interesting that when you start communicating, and there are various theories about that. One theory is, oh, when you start communicating and making promises, uh, you feel you're part of the group. And uh, so your preferences change dramatically. You know, you don't have more individual preference, you have group preference. This is a theory. Uh, not well supported, I must say. There are other experiments, etc. Another theory is uh, when you promise, uh, you are basically in the grip of a promise norm, which is very strong. When you promise, you keep your promise. You don't promise. You, you don't open your mouth. And the lady didn't open her mouth. <laughs> so I think I think a, probably a better explanation, we should do more experiments on that, is uh, that uh, when you utter a promise, you commit, usually you stick to that. And again, uh, if you think uh, uh, of uh, what to do uh, in society, not just in an experiment, typically when you commit, you want to fulfill your commitment because there is a strong reputational effect linked to that. Yeah. I mean, surely, surely that's what's going on, right? You're inviting opprobrium and sanction if you don't do it. And so you're just changing the payoff. Yes, but the interesting thing is uh, that, you know, nothing changed, um, uh, you know, if uh, you promise and then you don't fulfill the promise. There are four people. Nobody knows who did not do the right thing. It's anonymous. So you can absolutely cheat, but they don't. If you are playing a game where um, you can find out who cheated after the fact, then it's still not obvious what my reason is for kind of, you know, in some way punishing or sanctioning the person who who did cheat. It's like, it's almost like it's too late, right? And because presumably it's costly to me a little bit to punish someone else. Okay, uh, this is the question. Why do people, third party, let's say, punishment? Yeah. You know, third party punishment is the biggest mystery because second party punishment is uh, the three of us play together and, uh, you know, let's say that I cheated and you feel really angry, you want to punish me, it's a cost to you, but you feel very happy, etc. But think of a third party who, in an experiment, we give this person money that he or she can keep. 
and this person will observe what we did and then can punish. They will. They will. It's very interesting. So people, again, are we are non-following machines. <laughs> so if somebody doesn't follow the rule, and of course, in normal life, maybe you don't punish, you know, because the damage has been already done, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And uh, in an experiment is uh, a much more constrained situation. The punishment is very cheap, uh, you know, is uh, a few dollars, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, you, you will tend to punish more because it's an environment that allows you to do that without an enormous cost. But so there is punishment. I've done recently an experiment on punishment and compensation. I had done several experiments, but the last one is the most interesting, is uh, punishing and compensation in uh, a game where there is a trust, uh, um, a norm, basically a reciprocity. And it's very interesting. If you allow people to choose between not just punish or compensate, but also do both, they do very little punishing. People much prefer to compensate the victim. Okay? And they spend more money doing that than they would do in punishment. Now, the only situation where they punish is a situation, and compensate too still, but they punish, is when a norm was intentionally violated. Intentionality is crucial. If uh, the choice is the result of a random machine, etc., etc., they will never punish but still compensate the victim of a random event. And they compensate a lot. They spend their own money to compensate. Yeah, I find that really interesting. I think like one big lesson that really stands out to me from this like whole section is that ambiguity of norms versus like specificity of norms seems to really matter because a lot of what we're doing is, um, you know, kind of, can very contextual or like very dependent on the environment that if things are like really obvious around like what norm needs to apply uh then it's like really hard for us to like find an excuse not to do that or like it's somehow costly for us that um uh dissuades us as was the case um um right around like making promises and then you know even if there isn't really a reason it's just like really hard for me to like like break my word whereas if situations are like kind of ambiguous uh or it's like not exactly clear what what kind of um norm applies then it seems to just be a lot easier to interpret it as charitably or like as selfishly for yourself as as you want uh and you you did this like interesting study around this too right around um what type of uncertainty is it exactly uh that that binds is it around normative or is it around like empirical expectations uh yeah can can you elaborate on this we have experiments on that, actually. Well, I, I must tell you uh, as a premise uh, that whether there is ambiguity, uncertainty, etc., certainly uh, we, uh, you know, uh, will try <laughs> to do self-serving interpretations, of course. But remember one thing, these interpretations are always interpretations that could be publicly justifiable. People don't do something selfish and then justify by saying, oh, I prefer to do that. Never. Okay. People do bad things or selfish things, let's say, when it is completely justifiable. Okay. I give you an example. In a recent experiment with some colleagues, uh, we... Uh, 
we let people decide. Uh, you divide people into separate groups, and uh, one group has to decide um, about two sentences. One sentence says, most people in the previous group that played this game cheated for their own benefit. The other sentence says, most people in the previous group who played this game uh, were completely honest, never cheated. Okay, And the game is a game that was invented by a psychologist, is a game in which uh, you toss uh, a die, and uh, uh, if the number five come up, uh, you get a monetary price. If any other number come up, you get nothing. Okay? And um, we know that there is a tendency to cheat. Why? It is completely anonymous. Okay? And you can say five. <laughs> and nobody will know <laughs> if it was a five or a one. Okay. Now, when people have to choose between two sentences, uh, there can be two conditions. In the first condition, they explain this game. Previous people played. and We ask which of the two sentences is true. What, what do you think they did? But uh, that's all they know. Okay? They don't know that, for example, they will have to play the same game afterwards. Okay? So, one group is given the empirical sentences, but doesn't know they will have to play. Uh, what do they say? Well, they say that the true sentence is most people did not cheat. Okay? Then you ask a second group, but the only difference is the second group knows that after they answer this question, they will have to play the toss a die game. What happens? The large majority says the majority cheated. <laughs> and then, of course, you look at what they do and they cheat in large numbers. So uh, we, and you know, we did with normative and with normative, they always choose the sentence, most people disapprove of cheating. Even if they know, they will have to play the game afterwards. And when they play the game afterwards, you know, they cheat quite a bit. So why they only manipulate the empirical statement, but not the normative? So we were really surprised. First of all, that people manipulate beliefs to their own advantage, we are, oh, I know we play, oh yes, then most people, I believe most people cheated, <laughs> and it justifies my cheating, etc. And I don't manipulate the normative, uh, because uh, it would be strange to think that, uh, you know, most people approve of cheating, but even if most people disapprove of cheating, it doesn't mean they will not cheat. And so we did a subsequent experiment in which we measure inferences. So we tell people, most people uh, behaved in a very nice way, etc. And uh, uh, what do you think they approve of? And they say, of course. 
this majority who behave in a nice way approve of believing in the nice way. And then we give another, uh, another group the opposite statement. Most people approve of not lying. How many do you think do not lie? Much less than the approval number. Okay. So there are very different inferences that people draw from empirical versus normative information. First point. Second point, coming back to your question, do we manipulate? Yes. What we prefer to manipulate? The empirical. What we prefer to manipulate are beliefs about what people did, what was done, actions. Why? Because what we infer from those bad actions is that people approve of them. You know, they did it, they must have approved of it. It's weird that people manipulate the thing more often that is easier to be shown that you're wrong, right? I'm finding this quite surprising. <laughs> it's, uh, it's completely fascinating, but uh, we have very, very strong evidence of belief manipulation. Again, especially going back to your question, where the information is ambiguous, there is uncertainty, because I give you two sentences, I tell you one is true, Ah, moreover, I forgot to tell you, if you tell me which one is true, you win a prize. They completely disregard the prize. They go for the one that favors, you know, their cheating, basically. This is like really interesting. I think maybe it's like a nice segue now into uh, maybe spending the, the last part of our conversation talking about some of the like real world or I guess like policy implications of uh, what should we do now with all of this like seemingly like weird and unusual and, uh, and interesting information around uh, how people behave around like social norms. So maybe like one way to introduce this is to maybe recap um, some of the things we've already touched upon, uh, some of the like maybe policy implications. Um, one seems to like strongly be um, that like a lack of communication or uh, a lack of like clear information can lead to uh, bad, uh, useless norms kind of persisting and that information interventions that can credibly change uh, empirical expectations can be really powerful. Um, another point was around this uh, like priming uh, maybe around norms. So context really matters, um, both in terms of like getting people to think about the right norms, but also just in general of avoiding this ambiguity uh, that can then lead to these uh, selfish interpretations. And yeah, I'm wondering, is there anything else that uh, you think uh, we might have missed or that you want to like emphasize of like, these are just like really important principles around norms that I want like policymakers to, to know and understand? Well, one other very important point that I saw with the COVID-19 story, with the pandemic story, when you send a message, is uh, to pay an enormous attention to the reference network. So sending a message, uh, I remember I, I pay a lot of attention, given my, my interest, to the content of the message that is sent out. You know, I always... Uh, I want to listen to that. And uh, the first message, uh, uh, I'm thinking of Italy because I was spending time there in my sabbatical. And uh, the message was very interesting. It said, uh, you should stay home and wear masks and do all these, uh, all these things because, uh, uh, you know, COVID is very dangerous for older people and with people with pre-existing conditions. Okay, so they were really stressing uh, this uh, uh, group of people, this subgroup of people. And uh, I thought uh, that it was quite dangerous 
because a younger person would think, okay, I'm not old to start with. And second, I'm not, I do not have pre-existing conditions. And therefore, you know, I'm not at risk. You know, they were just putting, uh, attaching risk to a very specific subset of the population. And uh, this, uh, I, I thought, was a very, very wrong message. Why? Because the reference network of a young person is not the 60-year-old with diabetes. <laughs> okay, well, you may say if your grandparents live at home, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but you know, it, it's, uh, it's not uh, the right message for them. And so I think that in general, uh, you have to pay an enormous attention to the reference network of different groups. And by reference network, do you mean something like the people whose approval or disapproval I care most about? Yes, uh, the people who are uh, immediately relevant to these particular actions that uh, that you will perform so for for example if if you are a 15 year old on tiktok and instagram etc etc part of your day maybe <laughs> all your day <laughs> what happens is this uh, this community is your reference network your friends etc not so much your parents or your grandparents or people in their 60s etc etc and so the message you have to send to these very young people will be maybe through tiktok etc and sent by some like them okay because they will listen it will have an effect and so uh, to make a long story short i think that when you send a message you always have to be very very aware of the reference network because it's what matters so you described a kind of message which um doesn't work so well when you led the survey of what kinds of interventions effective mask wearing and public health compliance as well did you figure out any messages which did work better? Uh, well, there are a lot of studies, but we did an interesting study on nine different countries, a gigantic study, actually. And uh, we use uh, um, on norm nudging, okay? And we use uh, two behavior, not the mask behavior, which was different in different countries, but stay home and keep a distance was almost a universal rule everywhere. And the countries were two countries in Latin America, China, South Korea, four countries in Europe and the US. So quite widespread. Now, uh, you see that uh, if you put people in a condition, and this was experimental with vignette, et cetera, et cetera, of uh, um, you know, being in a condition in which you think that most people do the right thing and most people approve of it, they say, yes, it should be done. Okay, so it looks as as if norm nudging is successful, you know, uh, will be okay. The problem is that there is a big moderator, and once the moderator trusts in science, you can give all the message in the world and choose the best reference network, etc. If people, in particular, in this case, in case of pandemic, which is a medical science slash case. If there is little trust in science, nothing will work. They will not obey the message. Okay? And so we measure trust in science in different countries. And these are, of course, averages. But the U.S. has the lowest average of all. Yes. (laughs) And uh, when I give talks, 
uh, in America, people are not surprised at all. So apparently uh, it's well known that in the U.S., uh, you know, again, it's an average. So there are parts in which there is an enormous trust in science, but this is zero trust in science. An average is pretty low, okay? And uh, this is a very important moderator of, uh, uh, you know, giving people information and message, etc., because they will not work if they don't trust science. Yeah, so it seems like one thing you can do is try to improve trust in science overall. That sounds like a, cha- a steep challenge. Maybe another thing you could do is to find people whose reference networks include people who are especially skeptical of, you know, the kind of establishment science or something. Um, and then you can get them to say things like, look, I'm skeptical too of um, big chunks of of what, you know, the consensus is. But I really do think that this this particular behavior change is important. Like, I really do think that staring at home is, is pretty important because, you know, I have like loved ones who are especially vulnerable or something. And then you're like appealing to the people who are skeptical of science without changing how skeptical they are. <laughs> Maybe that could work as well. Um, I'm not sure because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, one thing that has been tried a lot was uh, asking uh, people who were influential with particular reference group, uh, you know, to come up and say it's important to do exactly what you say, you know, it has been done. And, uh, you know, it may work uh, or it may not work. It depends. What we find uh, is uh, uh, that people, the Novaxers, for example, are a a significant group uh, and uh, they have a confirmation bias. Basically, they only look at information that aligns with their beliefs. And if their prior belief is that the big corporations are there, you know, to skin us off, <laughs> you know, they don't do any good and the vaccine is a tragedy, will do uh, God knows what bad thing uh, along the line, etc. cetera, uh, is very hard to convince them. And speaking of that, we did, uh, is on Twitter, I posted the study on Twitter, uh, uh, there are two recent studies I posted, the second. Basically, what we did, uh, we ha- I am very interested uh, in study um, uh, the perception of inequality. You know, how people perceive there isn't much inequality, not, etc. And uh, uh, what we saw in another paper we published uh, is that in America, of course, in Europe, it may be a very different results, I think. But the more autonomous people feel they are, uh, they, and they feel that other people are autonomous too, the less inequality they think there is. Okay, why? Because if you are autonomous, uh, you are the master of your own life. And uh, if you are the master of your own life, they are very optimistic. You can do a lot of things uh, to get out of poverty. Society is fair. You know, it praises merit, et cetera, et cetera. And so there must be very few poor people. So the the more autonomous people are in the U.S., the less inequality they perceive because they think that poor people are really a small number. They completely, they completely are completely wrong about numbers. So the second experiment, which uh, I put uh, uh, on Twitter, is this. We take these people who have completely uh, underestimate poverty, we give them census data about, you know, quartiles, and there are so many more poor people than they imagine, 
Do they change their belief? Yes. You know, they, they change their belief. The census results, they don't believe the census, they us lie, tell us lies. But then we look at their policy redistribution preferences, they stay exactly the same. So the fact that they now believe that there are so many more poor people does not change the policy implication of that at all. It's a very interesting paper, is, uh, you know, is posted there. Yeah, it, so it reminds me of, I think Dan Kahan does some of this work when you're showing that um, the most sophisticated hardline climate skeptics are often those people who know the most about the climate science and often more than than uh, people who are like sympathetic to um, doing something about climate change. Um, okay, so here's a natural a natural question, maybe a question to actually kind of begin wrapping up with. Um, what can you do to change people's beliefs uh, about, you know, about policy change? The policy change, I mean, is a, uh, is very interesting. It has to do also with their belief uh, of uh, uh, their autonomy beliefs, their belief uh, that people, you know, uh, can do everything on their own, basically, that they don't need a state. Most of these people are libertarians. They think the state is uh, almost useless, okay? Uh, it's uh, good to have a legal system. It's good to be an army, maybe, but that's all. Okay, and uh, welfare is uh, uh, basically useless. They believe in charities, for example. If you do these studies, you see that people believe in charities, believe that people should give to charity. But it's a very private thing. It's my decision to give to a charity. It's not the state, uh, you know, and I have to pay taxes about that, etc. No, 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 no. You know, they are all very, very strongly in favor of charities, and uh, very personal and preferential giving to certain causes. But the state taxing me to, to give welfare to this particular group, no way. Okay, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, the view. I want to go back to one question you, you were um, asking, which I think is very important, which is, should we do better in giving scientific information to people? And I think one very important thing that uh, we have to realize is that people hate uncertainty. And science, by definition, is belief. <laughs> you know, it's well-supported belief, but it's belief. You know, it's not truth with a big T. You know, science changes, and especially in a period that we live now with the pandemic, where we learn by doing, basically. I think that people have been uh, very upset to listen to contrasting opinions on TV because for most people, if it's scientific, is one opinion and is the true one. And so uh, to me, it seems important uh, to educate people to what science is, you know, is not uh, perennial eternal truth is well-supported beliefs. And the problem is, yeah, my belief may be wrong, but they were well-supported by the statistics, by all the tools we have and we believe in, okay? And this is something that the general public does not understand. This is important. When you communicate science, you have to make people more aware and tolerant of a certain level of uncertainty. I like the framing of science as a, as a kind of process for you know testing hypotheses rather than some 
fixed body of knowledge because exactly like say, it's not that at all. But uh, this is not uh, what the public uh, uh, at large think about that uh, about science. And so I heard people. I know no vaxxers. I know some people who are no vaxxers. And one of the argument is, come on, you know, you hear one uh, uh, immunologist saying uh, A and the other immunologist say B. What does it mean? They have no idea. It used to be global cooling. Now it's global warming. Exactly. Why should I trust anything? Global warming, not to mention. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and can lead you presumably, right, to like really you know, weird or like uncomfortable situations as well for scientists or like communicators where they then feel obliged to like state their results or state their beliefs with like much more certainty than like might actually be the case, right? And then when things then, you know, backfire around like mask wearing, uh, uh, mask wearing or like certainty around like climate models, then it's like even worse, right? Because then, uh, of course, like people are uh, like overconfident and you should like discount them to some degree. Exactly. It's a big problem. Is a big problem. I think people should be educated. Children started in school should be educated about science and what it is and what it is not. Okay, this is crucial, and we are not, honestly. So that, that's a big problem. I think that might be a nice note to wrap up on. Maybe we could move to our to our final questions. Um, what three books or anything else, like articles, films, uh, would you recommend for someone who's listening to this and interested in finding out more about? anything you've talked about? Well, of course, I recommend my books. <laughs> of course. <laughs> if you're interested, uh, you know, in an analysis of social norm and application is the grammar of society and norms in the wild, obviously. Uh, which other books uh, I would recommend? Uh, I would recommend, uh, um, I mean, I don't know if he ever wrote a book, but he wrote some fundamental articles uh, that have been very useful to me. Uh, is uh, a sociologist, Granovetter. And Granovetter wrote fundamental stuff about uh, basically uh, threshold. When people change belief, there are always thresholds and what does it mean and how you can calculate these thresholds, etc. So he, he has had an enormous influence on me. Another person who had an enormous influence on me has been Thomas Schelling. And uh, a great book is Micromotive and Macrobehavior. You know, Schelling has been absolutely fundamental. And again, lots of stuff Schelling said, uh, you know, in his own way. Um, You can find also in my work, uh, I was very much influenced, uh, uh, you know, by Schelling. And another book, uh, which uh, probably a lot of people have uh, forgotten, but is a fundamental book, is a book by Banfield, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society, is one of the best books I read. Okay? And uh, is a book about what happens if there is no trust. And is an analysis of a small southern village, village, little town, uh, that will be, in his view, impervious to market forces in capitalism, exactly because uh, there is basically no trust and he explains why. And it's one of the books that had an enormous influence on me. And uh, I think uh, that we can uh, translate uh, those uh, uh, that thinking and those results in many, many other situations and societies. Very important. Because, for example, now 
I got a big grant to study poverty in the U.S. And I think one of the big uh, blocks to entrepreneurship, to doing better, is the lack of trust. These communities are plagued by total lack of trust. And so Banfield in his remote Italian <laughs> village story is very important to read. These sound like fantastic uh, recommendations and we'll put all of these uh, up, up on our website. Um, the other closing question that we're really keen to ask guests is we have a lot of uh, students and, and researchers listening to this, many of whom are looking for, for new areas to maybe uh, research. So a question to you is, are there any areas or specific questions that you would like to see uh, more good work on? Yes, uh, non-change is a big challenging question. How do norms emerge and how do norms change? Okay, and uh, you know, there are lots of attempts uh, to try to explain that, but I think not enough work has been done on that. And uh, why I quoted Granovetter as a great example, because uh, when, uh, you know, to change a norm, uh, you need, for example, trendsetters, you know, you need people who start, the, especially norm as well established, people who start this change. But then we all have thresholds. For you, it will be enough that you see 10 people change to change. For him, it may be 200 people. And so trendsetter may completely fail because, you know, we don't reach uh, the right threshold. And that, again, Granovetter talks about thresholds and how to fill these big gaps in thresholds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is, I think, is a very important question to keep in mind when you study norm change, when a norm declines, how it dies out, how it emerges, etc., etc. We really know still very little about the dynamics of these processes. And I think this is a big challenge. It's very, very important. Also because very often when we do intervention, we want to create new norm or eliminate old one. How do we do that? This is the interesting question, I think, for me. Fantastic. And then very last question is, where can people find you and what you're working on online? I have a research center. Uh, it's a center for social norm and behavioral dynamics, CN. B-D, CNBD, is at the University of Pennsylvania. If you look at that, if you look at the page, there are lots of publications we have. We have several members. We have a very nice uh, board. Cialdini is in the board, for example, or Holsworth is in the board. <laughs> you know, very big uh, behavioral people, they are in the board. And also we do, not weekly, but every two weeks, uh, uh, no bad talks and uh, people can uh, uh, you know uh, ask to be in the list and these talks are very interesting because there is a famous person giving a talk on their most recent research but before the famous person we ask a very young scholar a, a young postdoc a young researcher to give uh, like 15 minutes of, uh, give us 15 minutes of time presenting new research so it's very interesting because you have the really new research of the youngest people and then famous people who show their new pieces of research. And uh, these are called Nobeck Talks. Also, I have a page on academia where they can read all my papers. I keep publishing stuff there. 
but the nobet talks are very, very well followed. They are very interesting and I recommend people to go there. That's great. No, we'll we'll definitely make sure to include all of those links uh, on our website uh, when, when this episode goes up. Uh, but for now, Christina Bicciari, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was uh, very interesting and challenging. That was Christina Bicciari on social norms and the grammar of society. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Bicciari. That's B-I-C-C-H-I-E-R-I. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. And if you know of any other cool resources on these topics that others might find useful too, then please send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com and we'll add them to the list. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, email us or click on the link on the website, where we'll have an anonymous form under each episode. And lastly, if you want to support and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can always leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer Jason for editing these episodes and thank you very much for listening.